Okay, today, Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, increment 58. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, the target verses. Today, we will be praying together about an action that only God can perform. Yahweh says in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for you. In our prayer, and Father, we pray it again today, we pray that you will rebuke the supernatural devourer who seeks to eat up the freedoms that you have graced this nation with. And we do so as we hold up the shields of faith together as an advancing phalanx. We ask you to do this not because we have tithed, but because your son has given all, and we pray it in his name. We also think of our brother Bill Carpenter, father, who has suffered some physical ailments lately, and we pray that you will hold him in life as you hold his wife Jennifer in peace. And we ask this as we present ourselves to you for the communication of your word And we also pray for our brother Emery, that you'll hold him in life and prosper his upcoming surgery, give him full recovery and quick recovery, and may this be a time of unexpected blessing for him and his family. We thank you for this time, Father. We present ourselves to you, as I always do, entrusting my spirit to you as a communicator and the spirits of all those who receive this word, which we know will be to the end of glorifying you in your Son, and by your word, in Jesus' name, amen. The twofold question that we asked early on in Hebrews, and asked it over and over again recurrently throughout our studies so far, why did the Son need to be perfected, and why through suffering? Well, it's still being answered In Hebrews 2.17, it says, for the same reason, and that harks all the way back to verse 10, that it was fitting that he be made perfect through suffering. For the same reason, it says, he was bound to become like his siblings in every way. And we learn later that in every way is qualified by a phrase called except for sin in Hebrews 4.15. He was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God. To make, and you'll notice I do this, expiation slash propitiation. I think it takes two words or two concepts to explain this effect or this part of the work of Christ on the cross. Expiation slash propitiation for the sins of the people for since he himself has suffered and been tempted while being tested he is able to help those who are being tempted while being tested I'm going to read those two verses again because that's where we find ourselves in our continued exposition of Hebrews For the same reason, he was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God, to make expiation, propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For since he himself has suffered and been tempted while being tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted while being tested. And that includes us in the agona, in the clash of the ages, which we identified in our Romans, the epistle series in Romans 8. The son had to be perfected or completed. And that completion had to be through suffering. In order to be completely qualified to be the archpriest of human beings throughout the course of time until the completion of humanity in him. For the sins of the people, in Hebrews 2.17, anticipates a verse deep in the epistle, in Hebrews 7.27, in which the PT says of Jesus as the archpriest that he doesn't need, quote, he doesn't need, as the priests of the Levitical order, to offer sacrifices every day for their own sins and for those of the people. And here's the ticket. Because he did this once and for all when he offered himself once for all. The Greek word there for once for all is ephapax. That's E-P-H-A-P-A-X. It's a catchword in Hebrews, along with the synonym hapax, H-A-P-A-X, without the epi foreword. In Hebrews 9.12 and 10.10, and 10, 10, we have ephapax. Hapax also appears elsewhere without the prefixed term epi. Jesus' sacrifice is therefore dissimilar not similar, but dissimilar to the sacrifices offered by the priests of the Levitical order for at least four reasons. And we're projecting now deeper into the epistle with this teaching today. There are many more reasons and many more dissimilarities as well as similarities between the sacrifice Jesus offered and the sacrifices offered under the Levitical order. Four distinct dissimilarities stand out for today. One, Jesus did not offer sacrifices for his own sins as the priests of the old order and for those of the people because he never sinned even though throughout his life in the days of his flesh in his contingent humanity he was tested in every way like all human beings are and then some especially as he drew nearer to the ordeal of the cross. Though Hebrews 2.17 says that the eternal son was, quote, bound to become like his siblings in every way, Hebrews 4.15, again we're using exegetical archery, firing an arrow deeper into the epistle, Hebrews 4.15 adds the qualification, yet without sin. So entirely like us, yet without sin. Moreover, Hebrews 7.26 describes Jesus, the Son, as, quote, just the kind of archpriest that we need, holy, innocent, literally 
without evil, akakos, without evil, pure and different from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's the kind of high priest that we have in Hebrews 8.1. Notice that Jesus alone can be called different from sinners. I wish this lesson could be learned by everybody in our nation today. Only Jesus can be called or described as different from sinners. Another rendering of this descriptive phrase is separate from sinners. Holy, undefiled, innocent, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That's our priest, our archpriest. No matter how far along the path of the just that we are, no matter how long we've been growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it cannot be said yet of any of us that we are different from sinners or separate from sinners. It would be pretty arrogant and self-righteous of us to assume or to pretend otherwise. It's also pretty unfair of us to expect other people to be different from sinners, including candidates for political office. The present tone and tenor of our culture is pretty self-righteous. It's constantly damning and canceling, gossiping and slandering people for the awful crime of not being different from sinners. It'd be better to be attentive, I think. It'd be better to be attentive to the only one who is different from sinners and thank God that God has made him to be our righteousness. We have many reasonable expectations. I said we may have many reasonable expectations of our friends and our peers, our children and our students, our parents and our leaders. But we should never expect of them that they will be different from sinners until the bodily resurrection. Our archpriest, Archihierus in the Greek, has made purification for sins. That's firing an arrow backwards in the epistle to Hebrews 1.3. He has made purification for sins and has sat down at the right side of the majesty above the heavens. That's Hebrews 1.3. Jesus, our archpriest, offered one sacrifice for the sins of the people and not for his own sins, like the priests of the Old Testament, for his own sins were non-existent. The people whose sins he offered himself, himself for also is not only the people of Israel, but the people of the whole world. For all people, for all time. Lest an Israelite think that the Messiah offered a sacrifice only for the sins of Israel, or lest a Christian might think that Jesus Christ offered himself 
for the sins only of Christians, we ought to pay attention to the scripture which says that Jesus Christ the righteous, the propitiation for our sins, was also the propitiation expiation or the putting away of the sins of the whole world. That's all people for all time. This is made eminently clear in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, where our advocate, Parakletos, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the expiation propitiation, not for our sins only, again, but for the sins of the whole world, of humanity. That's every human being throughout the course of all of human history. In fact, all of whom have sinned. We could make this a second dissimilarity, in fact, a second dissimilarity to the sacrifices made by the priests of the old order. And so here is the second dissimilarity. The priests of the old order, the order of Levi, offered sacrifices every day, it says, for their own sins and for the sins of the people. The people being Israel at that time when the sacrifices were made. Whereas dissimilar to that, Jesus, the eternal son, made like his siblings in every way except for sin, offered one sacrifice once and for all for the sins of the people, which is all of mankind, diachronically throughout all of history. That is, people all over the world for all of human history. Again, this is what I mean when I deploy the term diachronic to describe such a great salvation that Hebrews speaks of, not only Hebrews, but Romans, the Gospel of John and Revelation, as well as the entirety of the prophets in Acts 3.21 and the rest of the New Testament. All of these writings speak of a diachronic deliverance, a universally impactful deliverance, a salvation that extends to all of humanity, alive and dead, and throughout every era of history. The third dissimilarity between the many sacrifices offered by the Levitical order and the one and once and for all sacrifice made by Jesus, our archpriest, the third dissimilarity is this. In making propitiation expiation for the sins of the people, Jesus, our archpriest, didn't offer over and over again, even daily, the same sacrifices for sins that can never actually take away sins. But he offered one sacrifice for all sins, for all people, for all time. A sacrifice that actually did take away sins. Look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 7.27 says this eloquently and compactly, succinctly. It says he doesn't need, as the priests of the Levitical order, to offer sacrifices every day for their own sins and for those of the people because he did this 
when he offered himself once for all. Again, that's ephapax, as in Hebrews 9.12 and 10.10. It should be noted that though he did not make sacrifices for his own sins, because he had none, as the sinless one, he became sin, so that we, that's all people of all time, would be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you want documentation. Hebrews holds together as a unified disclosure, as well as a coherent word of encouragement. As a unified disclosure, it reveals that God spoke with decisive finality in his Son by speaking in the act of the sons once and for all and total self-sacrifice on behalf of all of humanity. Now, since that statement was not so succinct and compact as the Hebrew writers, I'm going to repeat it, and I'll say it again. As a unified disclosure, Hebrews reveals that God spoke with decisive finality in his son by speaking in the act of the sons once and for all and total self-sacrifice on behalf of all of humanity. There's no separation between Jesus Christ and this self-sacrifice because the offerer of the offering is himself the sacrifice, the offering. Herein lies the second, make that the third, profound dissimilarity of Jesus, our archpriest, from the archpriests of the old order. Jesus offered himself, not a sacrifice other than himself. He himself is the way, the truth, and the life, as he himself is the new and living way into the presence of the Father. Just as it is true that the one offering for all people for all time is Jesus Christ, it is equally true that he offered himself. Hebrews 9.25 to 26, which I regard as reaching a kind of zenith in the Hebrews letter or the Hebrews homily. Hebrews 9.25 to 26 captures both of these ideas. He didn't offer himself often as the archpriests enter into the holy places annually with the blood of others, says Hebrews 9.25. 9.26 goes on to say, if that were the case, then he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But as it is now... Once for all, there's the word hapax, without the epi prefix, but still just as potent. Hapax, once and for all, also found in Hebrews 9.28 and back in Hebrews 9.7. At the juncture of the eons, he appeared for the removal of sins by the sacrifice of himself. So I'll read again Hebrews 9.25 to 26. He didn't offer himself often as the archpriests enter into the holy places annually with the blood of others. 
That's animal sacrifices. If that were the case, then he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But as it is now, once and for all, at the juncture of the ages, he appeared for the removal of sins by the sacrifice of himself. So let's look at a fourth profound dissimilarity before we go on in our exposition today. A fourth profound dissimilarity is described in Hebrews 9.12. There it says that Jesus, quote, entered the holiest place once for all, and that he entered, quote, not by the ritual merit of blood of bulls and goats, but by the actual merit of his own blood, having obtained not an annual, but an eternal redemption. So, deep down field, if we want to use a football analogy appropriate to our season, deep down field, that is, deeper into the homily called Hebrews. Deep downfield, in fact, we could say all the way to the red zone. Hebrews 13, 11, and 12 says that in contrast to the high priest of the old archaic order who brought the blood of the sacrificial animals into the holy of holies, the earthly holy of holies, as a sin offering, in contrast to those priests, Jesus suffered death outside the gate to sanctify the people. Now remember who the people are whom Jesus sanctifies, and that's not just Israel after the flesh. Jesus suffered death outside the gate to sanctify the people by his own blood. Himself and his own blood. His own body in Hebrews 10, and his own blood here, his own flesh and blood. All of this is how God spoke with decisive finality in a son in these last days, Hebrews 1-2. Jesus' self-sacrifice, listen carefully to this, it could be the chapter of a volume of theology, Christology. Jesus' self-sacrifice is the visible self-revelation of the eternal unseen God whose self-revelation is his self-dedication to all of humanity, to all of creation, which is slated for eternal life as the new creation of all things. Another long sentence. I don't have the genius of succinctness. I'll say it again. Jesus' self-sacrifice is the visible self-revelation of the eternal unseen God whose self-revelation is his self-dedication to all of humanity, to all of creation which is slated for eternal life as the new creation of all things. I could be succinct and say, instead of all that, God is for us in Romans 8.31. Now here we understand why the eternal Son, in whom God spoke with definitive finality in these last days, all the way back in the exordium, and the exordium is kind of the kernel that contains the whole 
of the epistle in Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. We understand why the eternal Son in whom God spoke with definitive finality in these last days, Hebrews 1, 2, assumed the seed of Abraham, suffered, tasted death for everyone, and was exalted to the right hand of the majesty in heaven. There, beyond the veil, says Hebrews 6.20, now Jesus is ministering as an archpriest on behalf of people of faith who are presently being tempted while being tested in the arena or the agona that is the juncture of the ages. The prophetic and eschatological time of instauration that was kicked off with the appearance of Christ once and for all to put away sin by the offering of himself. I don't know how much you appreciate or how much you and I understand that we have been privileged to live in such a time as this. And I don't just mean 2020. I mean in the juncture of the ages, which was kicked off by the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is evident at this point why the Holy Spirit led us as a congregation to study Romans first before Hebrews. There in Romans, especially at the end, as we closed in on a pincer movement to the center in Romans 8, we discovered that the present clash of the ages constitutes a crucible of testing or an arena of contention for those in whom God has revealed his Son. Romans 8, 31 to 39. In verse 9 of chapter 2 of Hebrews, we have the first mention of the name Jesus. After all those verses, first time he's called Jesus, whom the readers and hearers are to see crowned with glory and honor. In these last two verses of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, our subject today, we have the first mention, again, of Jesus, but this time as a merciful and faithful archpriest. We have also here what's intended to be a great resurgence of spiritual momentum for you and for me with regard to the theme introduced in the exordium, that the Son made purification for sins. Here in Hebrews 2.17, the son who had become like his siblings and assumed the seed of Abraham made, and I want to say this word again, propitiation slash expiation. I think we need two words to describe this one divine phenomena in the cross, and I'll explain a little bit of what that means today at the end. What is propitiation? Propitiation or propitiation, quidsit. What is it? What's the quiddity of it? What's the essence of it? We'll begin to hit that at the end of today's message. The last two verses of chapter 2 not only catch the pass thrown by the PT all the way back in Hebrews 1.3, but they tuck the ball and run deep down the field through the central and then the final chapters of this homily. The theme of the priesthood goes all the way from 5 through 10, chapters 5 through 10, and then deep into 
13, verses 12 and 13, where we have the combination of the exposition and exhortation, the climax of both. These verses also reach deep into the heart of the exhortation aspect of this homily because the readers, hearers, readers slash hearers, that includes us, are currently being, listen carefully, tempted to drift away from the original reality and insight that they experienced in their early days of faith and enlightenment. God neither is tempted with evil, nor does he tempt people with evil. That's James 1.13. He does not tempt people with evil, neither is he tempted by it. Consequently, it would be absurd would it, if God doesn't tempt us, why do we think that the Lord's Prayer contains this petition, lead us not into temptation? It doesn't. That's not what it says. It says, don't let us crack under the pressure of the testing of this agona, is what it's talking about. A testing in which God tests, but a testing in which Satan tempts and tries to draw or magnetize away from our forward advance. Don't lose touch of that reality that we are advancing forward as a spiritual phalanx in the agona, the most critical phase of human history right now. And so again, the Lord, God, neither is tempted with evil nor does he tempt people with evil. People withdraw with an evil heart of unbelief. God didn't tempt him to do that. Hebrews 3.12. So consequently, it would be absurd to ask God not to lead us into temptation. As we have seen, this, this petition of the Lord's Prayer is better construed as, quote, don't let us crack under the pressure and that being the pressure that we are necessarily under, 1 Peter 1, 6, it's necessary. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, it's necessary. The pressure that we are necessarily under in the time of testing that precedes the full coming of the Father's kingdom. In fact, that petition is answered don't let us crack under the pressure. How did God answer it? By making Jesus Christ an archpriest for us who runs to our help in this time of pressurized combat, spiritual combat. So the petition, don't let us crack under the pressure of the agona, is answered at least in part by God providing Jesus not only as the expiation propitiation for our sins and the sins of the whole world for that matter, but also as a merciful and faithful archpriest who is able to take hold of us in our adversities and trials and truly help us, not promise to help us, actually help us. Seeing Jesus as their and our merciful and faithful archpriest offers the necessary incentive and lends the necessary momentum to get the readers and hearers, including us, through the necessary interval of testing 
And I say necessary because it's necessary as a means of completing us. It has been given to us not only the privilege of suffer of believing in him, but also of suffering for his sake. Philippians four Philippians one twenty nine. In fact, read Philippians one twenty seven to twenty nine frequently. More frequently than you consult your social media is my advice. If we're going to be completed as companions of the sun, we're going to go through this agona, and we're not going to crack under the pressure or resign ourselves to defeat or cave in to the mold of this age or retreat as cowards. No, we're going to press on to the preservation of the soul, Hebrews 10, 38, and 39. So we say this, and I speak of us in general. We, I have said it, at least meant it or intended it in some way or another. We say, I'm glad and grateful that Jesus suffered for me on the cross, for me on the cross. And we're right. Or if we are less self-absorbed, we may say this. I'm glad and grateful that Jesus suffered for us on the cross. But if you're like me, you may have added this. At least this is what you may have thought, even though you may not have turned it into an actual petition to God. But I'm suffering here. Or, but... We're suffering here. That's how I usually think as a pastor. It's hard for me to think outside of the congregation or without identifying with the whole congregation. But we're suffering here and we're being tempted to just blend in with the present evil age and go along with its trends, its ideologies, its goals and aspirations, its lusts and its ambitions, its inordinate competition with its lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. We're tempted. Well, the answer to that is this. We have an archpriest who suffers with us and who helps us so that we don't crack under the pressure of the agona of the ages and cave into despair, or something worse than despair, resignation. And surrender to the dictates of this evil age. Now as we run downfield, downfield in Hebrews, if we want to keep this metaphor going, We'll discover Hebrews 4.14 and we'll hear the coach slash PT. The coach slash PT. The head coach is really the Holy Spirit, but the PT is a coach under the head coach. We'll hear him holler from the sidelines. And I hope you'll hear me hollering today from the sidelines as you run. We have a great archpriest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. So keep tucking that ball and run. Let's hold fast our confession. You know what? If we're not ashamed of him now, he tells me he won't be ashamed of us when he comes to consummate our so great salvation. 
Here then in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, we're introduced to Jesus as our archpriest for the first time. His qualifications to be our archpriest, and not just any archpriest, but a merciful and faithful archpriest. Through the entire age and not just till physical death. It required that he suffer. So the son had to suffer to become a merciful and faithful archpriest. He suffered in such a way that he experienced death for everyone. In order to become a priest through the age like Melchizedek, whom Abraham met after a military victory in Genesis 14, 17 through 20. To be perfected or completely qualified, we could say, to be completely qualified, perfected in that way, as such an archpriest, it was fitting that he suffer for the sins of the whole world. To be completed as a great archpriest, you can give that an acronym if you want, G-A-P, great archpriest. He does fill the gap, after all, between us and the Lord and the Father. To be completed as a great archpriest through the age, he had to suffer not many times since the universe was created by him, But only once, and not just for Israel's sins, but for the sins of the world once and for all. In our time of testing in which we may be tempted, in our time of testing in which we may be tempted, it's just exactly in the time when you're at the height of testing that you are faced with some of the most luxurious temptations, the most attractive temptations. In our time of testing, in which we may be tempted to be discouraged and to drift away from the word of God and our acknowledgement of Jesus, the Son of God, let us instead see Jesus as our great archpriest, interceding for us in the power of of an indestructible life and coming to our aid and support in our testing in which we may be tempted to faint, to quit, to cave in, to throw in the towel or to ring out, ring the bell and quit our bud training, believers under doctrine training. Having this ministry of priests, and we have a ministry of priests because we are under the great high priest and we are a kingdom of priests, according to 1 Peter 2, 5, 2, 9, Revelation 1, 5, and 6. Having the ministry of priests in which we see Jesus, in which we behold with open faces the image of the Lord in the mirror of the word, we don't faint. We don't quit. We don't cave into the dictates of the present evil age, der Zeitgeist. 2 Corinthians 3.18 to 4.1 tells the story succinctly, which I'm telling today in a more prolonged way.
Now, there's a trend today of despising authority. Jesus despised the shame of the cross. But there's a trend today of despising authority. And don't think that that's not an egregious trend because the same people who were marching and saying that they hate the police are now saying they hate your Lord. Your Lord, Jesus Christ. Blank your Lord, they say. That's where this despite of authority goes. There's a trend today of despising authority. It is right to despise tyranny, but it's terribly wrong to despise duly constituted authority. Even if those who are delegated with such authority are not different from sinners. Only Jesus is sinless among humanity, and he is delegated with the authority of great archpriest. He is the antithesis of a tyrant. His authority is freedom. His authority is our liberation. He is a merciful and faithful archpriest. And so, as I said, this trend of despising authority does not stop at hating police or hating law and order. It transcends that to a hatred of the Lord himself and a hatred of God. They shall be haters of God is one of the trends that signals the end of a nation in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. This trend has seeped into some Christians even. I shouldn't be surprised. And they indicate this despite of authority by declaring that they don't need a pastor, they say. They are like prima donna football players who think they don't need a coach or they know better than the coach. A team is much better off without self-inflated jokers like that. The PT has the role of a coach of a team in many ways. The PT who wrote and preached Hebrews is a good example of that. In fact, his sermon, which we have originally, may have only originally reached a very small group of people, his original sermon, a small group of beleaguered Christians at first. But by God's design... That same little homily or sermon has incentivized millions of believers in this evil age, and it still imparts momentum to believers to participate and to persevere in the faith, the fidelity, and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in these times. Our great salvation was founded by a great Savior and is continually made effective in this world and in his people in this age by a great archpriest. At any event, a priest is a human who represents humans to God. He makes propitiation for the sins of the people, it says in Hebrews 2.17. Now, what does that mean? I want to hit this in our last segment here. You can compare this word for propitiation to passages in 1 John 2, 1 to 2, and 1 John 4, 9, and 10. The two functions of the archpriest are generally to make propitiation for sins 
and two, to make intercession. And these are the subject of Hebrews chapters 5 through 10, with 5 and 6, chapters 5 and 6, largely consisting of a preparation for the inestimably precious doctrine in Hebrews 7 through 10. Hebrews 1.3, we can fire an arrow back there, as I said, where he is said to have made purification for sins. We can also fire that arrow through Hebrews 2.17 to 18, through to Hebrews 3.1, where Jesus Christ is called the apostle and high priest of our confession. Then that arrow continues to pierce the entirety of the sermon through to 4.14, where Jesus, the Son of God, is our high priest or archpriest who has passed through the heavens. Then the arrow continues to 5.6 and 5.10 through 6.20 in Hebrews 7, where that high priesthood of Jesus Christ is said to be of the order of Melchizedek or like Melchizedek's priesthood. And that takes a big chunk of Hebrews, and there's a lot to be discovered in there, some of which has not yet been spoken of. So before, before leaving today, before leaving our Sunday exhortation and exposition, in our brief first look at Hebrews 2.17 and 18, or maybe our second look, we should ask just what is propitiation? Quits it. What is it? For a good start, I would like to present a somewhat lengthy quotation from Thomas Torrance, that's T-O-R-R-A-N-C-E, a book given to me a few years ago by our own Eric Diamond, and it's called The Mediation of Christ. It's an inestimably precious volume, and from it I want to quote a somewhat lengthy Quotation, because it answers in part, or at least broaches the question, what is propitiation? Here it is, quote, It is not too much to say, then, that the proper understanding of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit takes place only within the movement of atoning propitiation, whereby God draws near to us and draws us near to himself in believing response and brings us into union with himself through the gift of the Spirit. For it is only within that two-way movement of reconciling love that God's self-revelation to mankind attains its end. Through Christ and his awful self-sacrifice on the cross alone, may we sinful and alienated human beings have access by one spirit to the Father. By propitiation, of course, is not meant any placating or conciliating of God on our part. That's important to recognize. It does not mean any placating or conciliating of God on our part. For God is never acted upon by means of priestly sacrifice offered by human beings. Thus, as in the Old Testament liturgy, it is always God himself who provides the sacrifice whereby he draws near to the worshiper and draws the worshiper near to himself. 
So in the actualized liturgy of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, it is God himself who is atoning, who in atoning propitiation draws near to us and draws us near to himself. God does not love us, Calvin once wrote, because he has reconciled us to himself. It is because he loved us that he has reconciled us to himself. Propitiation is holy, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y, from beginning to end the movement of God's forgiving and expiating love, whereby in the initiative and freedom of his own divine being, he acts both from, one, from the side of God as God toward man and from the side of man as man toward God. Now that little passage to me expresses the sublime reality of the mediatorship of Jesus Christ. But I'll continue. This, I said it's a long quote. I'll say that last part again. Propitiation is holy from beginning to end. The movement of God's forgiving and expiating love, whereby in the initiative and freedom of his own divine being, he acts both from the side of God as God toward man and from the side of man as man toward God. Thereby, in the form of a relation of himself to himself, God bridges in his incarnate life in the Lord Jesus Christ the fearful chasm of alienation between man and himself, uniting himself with us under his own righteous judgment upon sin in order to bear and expiate our guilt all in himself as the one mediator between God and man who is himself very God and very man. This is the astonishing event which St. Paul once described as the justification of the ungodly. It is precisely in this propitiating movement of reconciliation and justification through his Son that God the Father opens his innermost heart and mind to us in the self-revelation of his love and through the communion of his spirit, makes himself present to us within the conditions of our creaturely existence in such a healing and creative way as to open our hearts and minds to receive and understand his self-revelation as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the same time, we are brought to know that what he is toward us in this propitiating movement as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is in himself, in the imminent relations of his one eternal and transcendent being as God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. Now that's a very lengthy quote, but again, it's only intended to initiate to you and I today, the meaning of propitiation, which would take volumes. There, we have interwoven a tapestry of exposition and exhortation today in a kind of faint imitation of this homily called Hebrews. 
My hope and my prayer is that it may just have incentivized you today and imparted a little momentum to you so that you can carry bravely on. Looking unto Jesus, the beginner and finisher of faith's race, who endured the cross, despising the shame, and certainly not his father's authority, despising the shame, and who has now taken his seat above the heavens in stupendous exaltation. And Father, it's in his name that we thank you today for this opportunity once again to look into your perfect Torah of freedom. And we thank you that throughout this time of pandemic, as it's called, you have provided for Tetelestai Phalanx and for all of us as members of the body of Christ. You have provided even that which we need to carry on as a church, as an assembly, until that grand day when we will be reunited physically. And we thank you, Father, that the saints have been praying for one another. We thank you that we don't pray to the saints, but as saints we pray for the saints. May you keep on motivating us to pray. Keep on incentivizing us to advance. Keep on granting us momentum through these messages and through our daily exhortation of one another as long as it's called today. And we thank you for all these things and make all these petitions in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen.